0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. We exist to help people grow in Christ, share the gospel, and serve the community. We hope you enjoy today's message. And So I want you to turn me to chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. When you're there, say amen. Amen. I'll begin reading for the sake of time verses 1 through 9, Philippians chapter 4, this is Apostle Paul speaking. He says this, So then, my dearly loved and longed for, brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner Stand firm in the Lord. Now I want to pause right here while we're reading this text. And I want you, if you're a note taker, I want you to highlight, underline, do whatever you got to do. Stand firm in the Lord. I want you to underline, stand firm in the Lord. You'll need this. I'll read verse one again. So then my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner, stand firm in the Lord. That's important, in the Lord. Dear friends, verse two, I urge Iodia, and I urge Syntyche, yes, those are correct pronunciations of those words, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Verse 4, rejoice where? In the Lord always. I want you to underline rejoice in the Lord. We underline stand firm in the Lord. Now I want you to underline rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Verse 5, let your graciousness be known to everyone The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we get to dive into this amazing passage today, God. I pray um, that we would just kind of focus in this morning, Lord, and just give you our hearts, our minds, our attention, God. I pray, Father, that we be fully engaged this morning. I pray this morning, God, that The joy of the Lord will be our portion this morning, God, that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Lord, I just thank you, Father, for a church that is willing to press uh, past everything that may be happening in life and the temptation to become complacent. Um, I pray, Father, that you would just renew our hearts and our minds, God, that that as we honor you, that as we pursue you, Father, I pray that you would that you would bless your people, God, that you would do something special in our lives God and so father through the preaching of the word and the hearing of the word today God I pray that it would not just stay in our ears and in our, in our minds God but it would reach our hearts God that it would cause us to respond in such a way that it would honor you and so today father we just thank you today God we will give you all the glory all the honor for everything that you say and everything that you do my prayer today God is that the word of God will be clear to us and I pray ultimately Lord that that Jesus would be glorified today and so father we thank you for this opportunity we pray this prayer in your son Jesus' name, and the people of God said amen. My sermon title from the sermon series Rebuild today is Joy Comes from the Lord. Joy comes from the Lord. Um, as we get to the end of this letter, which, which, which kind of makes me sad because we've been here for a while, after today's sermon, we only have one sermon left in the book of Philippians, and, and I think for all intents and purposes, today we can appreciate where we will actually end up if we first look back over the scope of the first three chapters. Paul started off in the first chapter of this letter. He let his purpose be made known for his people. He let us know what his goal was in writing this letter. His ultimate goal was that their love would keep on growing, and that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. He prayed, He said, My prayer request for you, my prayer. For you is that your love would keep on growing, and that you would be filled with the with the with the righteousness of Christ Jesus. That that you would have this righteousness to the praise and glory of God. Simply put, there are two things that Paul was praying for for the church at Philippi. Number one, he was praying for their growth, and he was praying for God's glory. He was praying for their growth and for God's glory. My prayer for you, outpouring. My prayer. For you as a church, number one is that you would grow in the Lord. And number two, my prayer is that through your growth and through your life, God will get the glory. My prayer for you is that you would grow and that God would get the glory. That is my prayer for you. That is the prayer for any ministry leader that is serving the people of God. The prayer should always be that God's people would grow and that God would eventually get the glory. Matter of fact, Paul says, due to my circumstances, which we all know because we've talked about it. Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Paul is under house arrest. He's under some conditions that none of us would want to be under. Paul is in prison, and Paul doesn't say, woe is me, I'm in prison. Paul actually says, what has happened to me, I preached a sermon called What Had Happened Was, Paul says, what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. We've said it before, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. He's falsely accused of of causing a public disturbance, i.e. he was preaching the gospel in a place in a place where people did not want him to preach the gospel. And Paul says, what has happened to me, I am in prison. I am in a place that I do not want to be. These are not favorable conditions that I'm actually living in. I would rather be anywhere else than here. But Paul says, what has happened to me, what has happened to me, where I am right now in my life, as much as I don't want certain things to be happening to me, Paul says, what has happened to me has actually served God's good purposes and it has advanced The gospel, Paul says, what has happened to me, actually, it's not about me, but it's about what God is doing through me. So eventually God will get the glory. Let me tell you, wherever you are today, what has happened to you is not about you, but about what God is doing through you and how God will get the glory through what you're going through. No matter what you're experiencing right now, it's actually not about you, but it's about what God is doing through you so God can get the glory out of your life. And so you may ask the question, how can a person who is in prison in unfavorable conditions dealing with something that he was not prepared to deal with, how can he have this perspective when his life is hanging in the balance? We've said it before that Paul is not in our modern day prison where you you live out your prison sentence in prison and then you get to go home. No, Paul is under house arrest in prison in such a way that all he's waiting for is to find out if he'll be released and go about his life or if he will die. His life hangs in the balance but yet he's saying what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. How can Paul have this perspective? Well, when your motto, when your life motto is to live is Christ, and to die is gain, you can have that type of perspective. So no matter what happens to you, if we all adopt the motto that to live is Christ, and to die is gain, we can have a perspective that whatever is happening to us is actually not about us, but it's about God, what God is doing through us, and how God is going to get the glory through what we're going through. This is good news, and Paul says his experiences. It's not about him. It's about what God is doing through him. And so this is all a matter of how Paul is perceiving what is happening to him. Two things are happening. It's about perception and it's about the response. It's about our perception of what happens to us and how we respond to what happens to us. And Paul says that my response, my response will exemplify what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. This is under the theme of to live your life worthy of the gospel. A lot of us deal with a lot of things in life. Some stuff we didn't know that we would have to deal with. Some things happen to us out of the blue. Some of us are in situations right now that we hope that would end soon. Some of us have gone through some things that we still don't understand why we had to go through those things. But Paul wants you to know that it's not about the thing that happens to you, but it's about how you perceive it and how you respond to it. And the way that God wants us to respond to it is he wants us to respond in a way that we would live our lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do I do that? We do that by looking to Jesus who the scripture tells us who existed in the form of God did not count equality with God as something to be exploited instead he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity and we had come as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross if you want to know how to live worthy of the gospel look no further than the life of Jesus who left heaven to come down to take on the form of a servant and to humble himself and give his life as a ransom for other people. And so when we see Jesus, what we see is a model of humility, a model of somebody who said, you know what, I don't have any rights, but the rights I do have, I give away my rights for the advantage of other people. I sacrifice myself." so that I can serve other people. Jesus lived a life of humility, and this is a call for us to live a life worthy of the gospel, meaning that we will live a life of humility, that God doesn't owe us anything, but we owe God everything. And so no matter what happens to us, it's not about what is happening. It is about how we respond to what is happening to us and how we perceive what is happening to us. And the, the, the overwhelming virtue of Philippians is that we would be a people who are a people of humility, not just humility towards God, but also humility towards other people. That, that's important, that, that even in the midst of everything that's going on in our lives, God wants us to take a humble, approach to how we handle everything that happens to us, even the things that we don't see coming. And so for 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 the Philippians, they they have a lot of things that are going on with them. They they have this social ostracism because they believe something that is contrary to what everybody else believes. That they are worried over their friend Paul's imprisonment. That they're worried about the financial struggle. They're one of the Macedonian churches who, in extreme poverty, gave a wealth of generosity. We'll learn about that next week. Uh, also, that they have to deal with these legalistic folks that are, that are hovering around the church, that are sucking out the spiritual vitality of the congregation. And lastly, they have these personal grievances with each other, because sometimes when things are happening to you on the outside, You sometimes don't have a choice but to fight the people that are closest to you. And this is what's happening. And here's here's what he says in verse 1. He says, in the midst of everything that's happening to you, in the midst of all of the suffering that you're going through right now, here's what I want you to do. And I told you to underline this. He tells them in verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Notice that he doesn't say stand firm on your own stand firm in your own willpower he tells them stand firm in the Lord essentially what he's saying is it doesn't matter what happens to you stick with it hold on to the gospel live worthy of the gospel if you say that you believe it then endure with it stick with it stand firm in the Lord in light of the promises that God has promised us in light of the heavenly reality that someday Jesus is going to come back and we're going to get glorified bodies at some point we're going to live a resurrected life with Jesus in light of all of that and all the things that are happening to you, stand firm in the Lord. Essentially, he's telling them, don't give up, but don't give up because you got strength and willpower, but don't give up because you have the strength of God. When you became saved, the Holy Spirit filled you up, and now you have God living on the inside of you, so don't use your strength to stand firm. Use the Lord's strength to stand firm. He says, stand firm where? In the Lord. It becomes hard for some of us because we try to do stuff in our own strength. And to do anything in your own strength as a Christian is a recipe for disaster. But he tells us to stand firm in the Lord. He's talking about our union with Christ. We are empowered through our union with Christ. He says, stand firm firm in the Lord. If we're ever going to get the promises or see the promises of God, he wants us to stand firm in the Lord, to stick with it no matter what happens to you. Yeah, some stuff might happen. Yeah, you may take a punch to the gut. Yeah, some things may not work out for you, but he wants us to stand firm in the Lord. And here's what happens in the text. Another thing that can cause us not to stand firm, not just things that happen to us, but people who are in our lives. Paul is pleading in this text, with two women. Two women are in this church who are servants in the Lord. They, they, are, they are servants in the Lord's church and apparently these two ladies had not been getting along. They, they haven't been getting along. Paul says, I, I urge Eodia and Syntyche to get along, to, to agree. Actually, when he tells them to agree, he says, agree in the Lord. If we look at verses 2 through, two through 3, it says, I urge Eodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And I ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. He says, don't just agree, but I need you to agree in the Lord. Now i got a question for you. How bad does your dissension in the church have to be? How bad does your beef with somebody else have to be that you get your name mentioned in the letter? How how bad does it have to be that when he writes an unusually warm and encouraging letter, that you get your name dropped at the end of the letter and it's not for something good. How significant does the issue have to be? I want you to think about this. If I go away for a long time, not to prison because I'm not going to jail, but if I go away for quite a while and I write a letter back and I say almost at the end of the letter, B-T-W, comma, XYZ and XYZ agree in the Lord. Can you imagine how you would feel? Now you can't feel me because you think you're like reading the letter like you're reading the Bible by yourself. But whenever they got these letters, these letters would be read out loud to the entire congregation. So everybody's here. You get your name called. This is like some hit em up type of stuff. You get your name said in a record. You get dissed on wax. This ain't no subliminal. This ain't no sneak diss. People ain't got to figure out. He literally names them in the text and tells them, stop all your nonsense. He says, agree in the Lord. Uh, agree in the Lord. What we, 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 we don't even know what their disagreement was about. He doesn't even care what their disagreement about. He doesn't even care how severe, severe it is. He doesn't care how bad it is. He just wants them to agree in the Lord. And here's the crazy thing. He's not talking about two sinners that have come into the church, two unsaved people. He says these women have actually labored For the sake of the gospel, they've actually helped me in ministry. They are actually believed people, which leads us to believe that you can be saved and still not get along with somebody. That two saved people can still have beef with each other. They both have served faithfully. But he tells them to agree, not just for agreement's sake, but agree in the Lord. Let Jesus be the reason for your agreement. The basis for unity and the basis for people to agree who have not agreed in the past is to start with the most important thing. Start with the gospel. At least we know we have something that we can agree about and then let's go from there. That's not just good advice for people in church. That's good advice at home that if two saved people Maybe in the same family, if both of us say we bear the name of Jesus, we at least have a starting point for something that we can agree on. If we can agree that Jesus, who he, who, who he is, is who he said he is, and Jesus has done what we know he's done, then we have a basis for our agreement. He says, let the gospel make you agree. Agree in the Lord. And here's the thing. He then says, you know what? I'm not just going to make it spiritual I'm going to also make it practical because he calls for a third party to intervene in their disagreement. He says, true partner, help these women. He finds value in having a third party mediator come in to help them with their disagreement. And so the sanctity and unity of the church in this text is too important to allow the disunity to continue. He, he actually is calling for for anyone that is willing to be not just a peacekeeper, but he's calling for for somebody to be a peacemaker, he says, "Blessed are those who are peacemakers. B- blessed are those who make peace." I love how one pastor put it in the book, "The Peacemaking Church." Curtis Heffelfinger said this: "The best church fight is the one your church never gets into in the first place." I like to say, the best family fight is the one your church never gets into in the first place, and he says, "Bringing out. I want you to agree in the Lord, but sometimes you need somebody to come in that is objective and either tell both of y'all, y'all crazy and need to repent or tell one person, hey, you're off base here. There, there's, some, there's some wisdom in bringing in a mature, seasoned person to come and speak into an issue because sometimes We we are too close to each other to to agree on anything, but sometimes we we need to bring another person in. You can be saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit and still not get along with people. Anywhere there is sin, there is the threat to not get along with people. And he is calling us as a church to, to start with agreement in the Lord and when necessary, bring in a third party. And he's not telling them to create some unity. No, we don't create unity. Unity is something that we've already been given. How do you know? Because we serve a triune God who is in unity with himself. So there's going to be unity. We have to look no further than the God that we serve. And that same God has given us the Holy Spirit that that makes us aware that we have the power that we need to, to agree in the Lord. Whenever issues arise, there should be a place that we can find some agreement. And that place is in the gospel. God can be the source or God is the source and the basis of our agreement. He's the basis of our union with Christ. We, we can get along with each other because we both have God. And if you can't agree on methodology, at least let us agree on our Christology and let our Christology shape our humility so that therefore we can get along with each other. Philippians 2 verses 3 through 5 tells us this. Do nothing out of selfish selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And so if you're going to get along with somebody, sometimes you have to say, you know what? We can't see the eye to, eye to eye, but I'll be the first person to put my difference aside. At some point, we have to be the mature person in the situation. You know, neither one of us have apologized. Both of us think that we are right. You know what? Because of Jesus, because he's called me to humility, you know what? I'll actually put my preference to the side and consider you more important than myself. Matter of fact, I'll put my issues to the side and I'll consider you more important than me. You know what? At the end of the day, especially in church, at the end of the day, the death of your preference doesn't mean the death of you. Just because your idea or your preference died doesn't mean you died. He says in the text that come come in between these two ladies, mediate this, Because their names are written in the book of life. Your idea might have died, but you haven't because you have life in Jesus. At the end of the day, if you don't get your way, it's not the death of you. It might be the death of your idea, but it's not the death of you. You still have life in Jesus. And if you have life in him, then you can agree in him. And if you can agree in him, it increases the likelihood that you can do this other thing that he calls us to, to rejoice in him. He says rejoice the Lord if you look at verses 4 through 7 I love this famous passage we've all said it before we've all sang it before he says rejoice in the Lord always I'll say it again rejoice Let, let your graciousness be known to everyone the Lord is near don't worry about anything but in everything through prayer and petition with Thanksgiving present your request to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He says rejoice in the Lord. Notice he doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord. He didn't say rejoice in what you got going on, he said rejoice in the Lord. He didn't say rejoice because it's Friday and it's payday. He said no, rejoice in the Lord, don't rejoice, because things are going good right now, but rejoice in the Lord. Because if you rejoice in the Lord you can always rejoice, because God never changes. He is always good. He says rejoice in the Lord. How can I rejoice in the Lord. If you are a believer, you can rejoice in the Lord because joy is a direct result of God's Grace, it comes from a relationship that God has already initiated with us. Joy is rooted in God, not in circumstances. If you're looking for joy, it's not found in a place, it's found in God. And if we could just tap into God, if we could just lean on the Holy Spirit, if we could just look to Him, we can find the joy that often eludes us due to our circumstances. And our joy is rooted in God because God is one that does not change. Do you know that people change jobs every day? Do you know that your bank account fluctuates up and down? Some some of y'all are saying it's more down than up. Do do you know that relationships with people change? But the one consistent thing in your life, if you're a believer, is that God does not change. That's assuring to us that God is always good. God is always consistent. And I love this because if you read it in the original text, Paul isn't saying rejoice in the Lord like it's good advice. He's making it as a command. He commands us to rejoice in the Lord, meaning that whatever you got going on in your life, you have a reason to rejoice. As bad as you think it is, there's a reason for you to rejoice. I love what Tim Keller says. He says this. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and taste the sweetness of it. I love that. Rejoicing is actually only the only right response to the grace of God. Why is that? Because we don't deserve his grace, but he gives it to us anyway. There's a reason for us to rejoice. I don't know where you find yourself today, but there is a reason for us to rejoice. The, the grace of God, the, the, the grace of God causes us to rejoice and it has a profound effect, not just on how we perceive circumstances, but also how we respond to people. He says in verse 5, let your graciousness be known to everyone. Let let this joy that you have, this grace of God, this direct result of the grace of God, let this graciousness be known to everybody around you. Have a reputation for being a gracious person. You got to remember their context, they're dealing with a lot of hostility for what they believe and, and actually, he's calling them to be gracious and be gentle to people who may have been hostile to them. He said, let, let your response to them not be vindictive, but be one of gentleness and, and graciousness. He's saying, don't, don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, but rather respond with graciousness to people who are unkind to you. He's actually telling us to kill them with kindness. If God's grace has hit your life, there should be a gentleness about you when people see you. What, what do people... Re- what do people receive when they, they get around you? Not not when things are going well, but what, what, kind of, what, what kind of temperament do you have when things are not going your way? Do people, do people know you as a bo- boisterous person? Do people know you as somebody who, who they got about 30 seconds before it's on and popping? Are, 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 you, are, are you that family member that, that everybody has to tiptoe around and walk on eggshells with? Are, are, everybody knows somebody like that. Are, 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 you, are, you, are you the person, who, I'm not talking about a doormat, but, but I'm saying, are, are you a person who, who people say, man, you, you know, that, that's a gracious and kind and, 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 and gentle and gentle person. And, and it's easier said than done, but this is what the grace of God does to us. It makes us gentle. When he says, let your graciousness be known. Matter of fact, it's a fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit of God, it's reasonable for you and I to be gentle people, to be gracious people. Because if you're gracious, if you're a gracious person, you're a gentle person, you know what that does? That decreases the likelihood of conflict. Nobody feels good yelling on somebody who's gentle and kind. There's certain people that you just feel bad for yelling at. There's certain people that you, they won't yell at you if, if no matter what you do, they won't get riled up. I'm not that person, but I'm saying there are people who are like that. No matter what you do, no matter what happens, you, you can't you can't make them upset. And, and he's saying our posture should be something like that. No matter what happens to us, we should be able to respond with grace. God, we, we are aware of God's spirit. We are we're aware that God is near, that the Lord is near to us, that his spirit is living on the inside of us, that we can have this graciousness. And this graciousness doesn't make us just Gentle in our response, but it also allows us to put things in proper perspective. And I love this because this is the most, this is the most popular part of the text. This is, this is the one that many of us pray about, but oftentimes we don't experience. Verse 6 says this. We've all read this before, but after today, I, I hope this becomes our reality. Verse 6 says, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. Don't worry about anything. Well, Pastor, I need you to break it down for me in the Greek what anything really means. It means anything. It means whatever scenario, situation, or circumstance you find yourself in, he says don't have anxiety about it. Don't worry about it. Not that we should not care not that we should become cold and detached and sterile about life but he tells us not to worry about anything he says no matter what it is big or small worry or anxiety is actually going to be a joy killer that if you're trying to have joy the number one way to get rid of your joy is to be anxious about something to worry yourself to death It, it distracts us it robs us of peace It keeps us off mission. It does all of those things. Matter of fact, there's a proverb. Proverbs 12, 25 says this anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down. You ever been so worried that it just weighed you? It just weighed you down. It felt like you had the weight of the world on your shoulders. He's saying that you, you shouldn't even worry to that place because deep anxiety is a symptom of misplaced trust. That meant that your trust was actually in that person or in that thing. Whenever you have deep anxiety, I mean the kind where you can't sleep at night, the kind where you lose your appetite, the kind where you cannot eat, the kind where you are worried and you can't focus and you're you're wildly distracted. He says that's actually symptomatic of misplaced trust. That means that you are actually functioning as a functional atheist. You're actually living as if God does not exist, but yet and still, he tells us not to worry about anything. There is a way in which worry and anxiety become sinful because you're putting your faith and trust in the outcome of that thing. But it gives us the antidote to all of our worries and all of our anxieties. And the antidote to anxiety is prayer. It's to pray. I love it where where Jesus says this about worrying. Matthew 6, 25 through 34, I love what Jesus says about it. He says this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or about your body or what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather in the barns. Your, Your heavenly father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown in the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you? Oh, you of little faith. So don't worry saying what we eat or what we drink or what we wear. Here's where it gets sinful. Verse 32. For the Gentiles... Eagerly seek all those things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will pro- be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. If your worrying has caused you to severely lack trust in God and has robbed you of your ability to to see him, and all you can see is your problem, the response today is to repent and turn from the anxiety and put your trust in Jesus. But even more than that, he wants us to pray. Prayer is an invitation not just to communicate with God, but prayer is an invitation to actually trust God. It's an invitation to trust, not just to tell God about your problems, but it's a way that we go and we trust God. I trust you when I pray, I'm actually communicating you to God that God, I can't do nothing about this, I need your help. God, I'm dependent on you, not my own strength. And he says pray about it in every situation, in every occasion with a posture of thanksgiving because there's something oh, always something to be thankful about. He says to pray, don't worry, but pray. He invites us to prayer. He says with prayer, and then he says something inter- interesting, With petition. Why did he just say with prayer and prayer? But he says with prayer and petition. Do you know what petition means? Petition literally means to ask God for something specific. To ask God for a particular Benefit. When I saw that, this blew my mind. He says with prayer, communicate with God, communicate with him about everything. Make it general, make it broad. But then he says prayer and petition, meaning that we should pray about particular things and ask God for specific benefits from him. And here's what I want you to know this morning. I couldn't wait to tell you this. We don't have to just pray some dry, faithless, hopeless, aimless prayer. Some of us have theologized. I know that's not a word, but I made it up on my way to church. Some of us have theologized ourselves out of asking God for specific things, especially things of a big nature. Some of us pray, God, whatever your will is, that's all I'm praying, whatever your will is, not because we truly at our core want God's will, but we pray it because it's safe and we're scared of the disappointment of unanswered prayer, so we pray like Paul's. But he says with prayer and petition that that you can ask God for anything, but some of us are so scared. But let God determine what's too big and what's too much, not you. And some of us have been limiting the scope of our prayers because we just don't think that God can do it. And so we rather pray, God. I'm just praying your will. Of course you want God's will to be done. But in some situations, you don't know what God's will is. And in those cases, pray like your heart is on fire. Pray like God can answer your prayer. Pray like God can do anything. Pray like nothing is too big. Pray like nothing is too small. Pray like nothing is insignificant. Pray like everything matters and give it to God and let him figure out the details. There are too many instances in Scripture where God is answering the prayers of people, whether they had big faith, small faith, or no faith at all, they still were praying and God was answering. And if he will do that for them, surely he'll do it for us. But you look at the Bible as a textbook and you like the information, but you don't want the experience. Well, I want the information and I want the experience. God didn't put all those healing miracles in the New Testament. He didn't put all of the responses to his prayers in the Old Testament for me to be amazed by it and say, man, that sure is nice. No, he wants me to see that so that I can know that he can do it in my life too. This is, this is how God wants us to pray. James told us a long time ago in James chapter 5, verse 16 the prayer of a righteous person availeth much. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in effect. If we pray, God can respond and God can answer. But God didn't answer at that time before. So what? Keep praying. There's a widow in Luke 18 who's praying to an unrighteous judge. The judge is not responding to her prayer. And Jesus puts this parable in the New Testament to show us to keep praying even when it seems like God ain't listening because he is. You know what the judge does? He says, because of her persistence. In the Greek text, it literally talks about the lady giving him a black eye. Her persistence was bruising to him. And he gave her what she was asking for, and he was an unjust judge. But if we serve a righteous and just God, won't he respond to us? But some of us are approaching God like some sterile, distant being that we're not sure of how he feels about us because of what we did last night or last week or last summer. He doesn't care. God says, come to me. If you are mine, come to me. We approach God like a loving father. He is not some distant, far away God, and we throw up a prayer hoping that it doesn't go into heaven's spam folder. But we go like a loving father. Do you know that every parent, your parents, my parents, that everybody that's ever been a parent, they love when their children express What's on their hearts, even at times when they're already fully aware of what's going on. Do you know that before you came to your parents at times when you were growing up, that they already knew what was wrong with you? But when you came to them, they didn't be like, I already know. No, they came to you and they received what you had to say because it warmed their heart. Because you coming to them was a sign of them that you trusted them. To God as his children, as his sons and daughters. We're communicating to God, you're not just God, you're my father, and I trust you. And for the child, whenever a child has released their concerns to their parents and told their parents what is on their hearts, children tend to walk away with an amazing assurance knowing that they just put the deepest thing in their heart into the hands of the one person in the world who has the power to do something about it. We felt that way as kids about our earthly parents. How much more should we feel like that about our perfect father? With everything, prayer, and petition. God, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Don't keep it from him, but place it before his feet. Let him determine whether he wants to answer it or not. Your responsibility is to pray, and when we release it to God, there's an assurance that comes with it, and it tells us about it in verse 7, and he says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, i.e., it won't even make no sense, will give, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The way to experience the peace of God is to release what is on my heart and in my head to God through prayer. He didn't say pick up the phone and call somebody else. He said pray. He didn't say send a long text thread to your closest friend telling them what's wrong with you, who's tripping in your life. No, he says, pray in the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds. There's this wholeness that comes with the peace of God. That affects not just our inner being, but also our outer being. It doesn't just give us peace. It makes us peaceful. Don't just give us peace. It makes us peaceful. It will guard our hearts and our minds. It will be like a fortress that is standing before us that no matter how many darts the enemy sins, no matter how many people try to get on your nerves, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard, guard. It will wall off our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a protection there. Isaiah 26 and three. I love it. He says you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, whose thoughts are fixed on you. The peace of God will guard our hearts and and our minds, but we also have to guard our minds as well. For you to focus on something that is unbecoming and not of God is not to help you have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Why do you say that? Because in verse 8, he tells us that. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any moral excellence, and if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things or dwell on these things. He tells us what we put in our mind matters. Because sometimes if you fill your mind and your eyes up with junk, you ain't going to have no peace. He tells us this, and we should look the things that demonstrate and exemplify the goodness of God. In the midst of difficulties, struggles, suffering, think on the truth of God's word and the beauty of God's creation. Think on the things that we see that God has blessed us with. Think on those things. Dwell on those things. Give proper value and weight to those things. Make a declaration not to set before our eyes anything that is worthless or, or to listen to anything that is worthless. We have to guard our minds. I love how Paul put it in Second Corinthians 10, 5. He says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And why would he do this? Why would he drive home such an amazing exhortation to right thinking after he told us that God will guard our hearts and minds because he knows that How we think is is inextricably linked to how we live. How we think is tied to how we live. Now I want to say this and I'm done. It gets back to the point of how we live. And what did I tell you has been the commission and the theme since the first chapter? To live a life worthy of the gospel. And one of the ways that we do this by standing firm in the Lord, agreeing in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord, praying to God with prayers and petition, making our requests known to God. And then this peace of God that surpasses all understanding guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. But then we have to do this job of stewarding our minds To think on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any moral excellence, if there's anything in our lives or that we see that is praiseworthy, he wants us to dwell on, to think on those things that we have to help, not help God, but we have to be in tandem with God through the power of the Holy Spirit to guard our hearts and minds. If you focus on you and your problems long enough, you will never experience the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. But he gives us the antidote. to Focus on things that are above to put our minds on what is true, on what is pure, on what is honorable, on what is lovely, what is commendable to what is excellent, to what is praiseworthy. It makes me ask the question, what is your thought life like? How often do you think about the things that are wrong in your life versus the goodness of God? Do, do, do you tend to lean towards, like myself, the glass is half empty? This is not me speaking to you from the ivory tower. I'm a glass half, matter of fact, I'm a glass don't have no water in it type of person but I've made a conscious effort in, in recent weeks to be more optimistic, not, not, not just some false power of positive thinking, but, 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 but to, to be hopeful because we have Jesus. That ultimately life boils down, it's about life and death, and Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so no matter what happens to us, how we respond to it matters to God that he wants us to live worthy of the gospel in all facets of life, no matter what happens to us. Paul says, I I want you to even look at my life. Do, Do what you have learned, received, and heard from me, and the God of peace will be with you. There's a peace that comes along with striving to live the way that God has called us to live. When we walk in the Spirit's power, when we walk in obedience, we can have confidence in knowing that God would never lead us to a place where he is not with us. You ever thought about that? That, that if we actually do what God commands us to do in the power of the Spirit, if we, if we live obedient lives that that God is commanding us to do things and go places where he is with us. God would never lead us to a place if we're obedient that he's not with us. Everything that God has commanded of his people is for their own flourishing and ultimately for his glory. There is a blessing in us being obedient. There's a blessing in us living a life that is worthy of the gospel. But when we walk in disobedience, we have reason to question the outcomes of our disobedience. But when we strive towards righteousness, Even in the tough places, we can take heart in knowing that the peace of God is with us. That's 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 great news. Because if your earthly parents tell you to go somewhere and to do something, 10 times out of 10, a decent parent would never tell you to do something or go somewhere that is harmful to you. Because they want what's best for you no different in our relationship with God. God is not setting forth before us a set of rules to keep, but he sets before us a course for us to chart that is for our own flourishing and blessing. That what God commands us to do is actually good for us and it brings glory to him. And this is what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, a a life where we can rejoice in all circumstances, in all seasons. And the God of peace will be with us. The God of peace, is the God who has made peace between himself and us. Sinners like you and I. Because his son also prayed. And made his request known to his father. In a prayer in a garden called Gethsemane. And in this instant, his father did not grant his request, but the son proceeded to carry out the will of his father by dying a bloody, gruesome death on a Roman cross, taking on the sin of humanity and incurring the wrath of God, dying the death that sinful humanity deserved to die. But the spirit of God raised that son to life, proving that his death was sufficient to pay the penalty of death for sinful humanity, and because of Christ the Son, we have peace with God and can be reconciled with God. Therefore, we can go to God with confidence that he hears us and will respond to our prayers. The God of peace is with us. And let me tell you this today, that no matter what you're experiencing in life, that the joy of the Lord can be our portion, that you can have joy in the midst of your circumstances, not because of the circumstances, but because of God. He is a good God. He promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And God brings joy to our heart whenever we think on the goodness of Jesus, it should do something to us. And so maybe for some of us, that means that we need to lift our eyes from the rubble and lift our eyes up to God and see all that he has done for us and all that he's doing through us and take joy knowing He's our father and we are his children. But joy certainly comes from the Lord. Let us pray. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If it was a blessing to you, please consider visiting our website, outpouringorlando.com, to connect with us and to also give financial support. If you are ever in the Orlando area, we would love to serve and worship with you. Have a wonderful week.